Welcome to Hilliard Studio Podcast, your resource for everything happening in the Hilliard Studio Method world. Hilliard Studio Method is now open for in-studio classes with a limited capacity, giving you a total of four different ways to work out with HSM. Whether you want to join us at home, online, outside the studio, or in a small group in the studio, you can pick the HSM class that fits your needs. To celebrate our reopening, take 30% off retail purchases when you take your first class with us back in studio. That's 30% off your retail purchase when you take your first class with us back in studio. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And now, here's your hosts, Liz Hilliard and Lee Canelli. everybody welcome back to the podcast i am lee and i'm always happy to be here with liz but we have a special guest today and i will let you do the introduction uh, we are pretty excited we've got reverend dr ben boswell of myers park baptist church here in charlotte in the heart of myers park joining us um, i'm gonna let him introduce himself further but i will say that i do know that this is a church that's been a progressive church here in the center of, Char- of charlotte for 75 years and he comes from quite a lineage of uh progressive incredibly activist ministers so welcome dr boswell i'm so glad to be here with you thank you for having me on liz and lee um yeah, I mean, I just give a little bit of my background. I was, um, I come from a family of Methodist ministers on my mother's side, um, and they were all Methodist. I'm sort of the first black sheep Baptist of the family. <laughs> of course, I'm, I'm in a very progressive Baptist tradition. This is the third um, progressive Baptist congregation I've served, um, and in all three contexts were welcoming and affirming congregations. The first two, I had to lead through the process of becoming welcoming and affirming congregations. Um, if you know what that means, welcoming and affirming of all people, regardless of sexuality and gender identity. And that took a lot of work. Um, but Myers Park is the first church that I came to that have, has already had already gone through that work many years before I arrived. Um, and I was just honored to be able to come and be a part of a, a church with such a strong progressive tradition. Um, before I was sort of on my trajectory as a pastor, I was an infantry officer. And um, so I served in the army for eight years in the National Guard predominantly, uh, which is where I learned a lot of leadership techniques. I mean, I really think that seminary does not train pastors to be leaders uh, very well, trains them theologically and, and intellectually and educationally and academically, but not as really as leaders. And I was, so I really got that from my military background. And, um, and then I was thinking I was going to be a professor for a long time. I was working on a PhD um, in Alexandria, Virginia at Catholic University of America and um, just didn't work out. I mean, I got, kind of got to a point where I, I got burned out with it and, and really felt the call into parish ministry. And that sort of changed the trajectory of my life. I'm, I now have completed a doctorate degree, but uh, it's been a long journey to get to that point. Um, yeah. I wanted to speak with you about that doctorate uh, thesis you wrote in just a moment, but we use progressive and you, I think you already spoke to what progressive means. Um, but can you speak to what progressive and Baptist at the same time means? Because <laughs> there's a lot of, uh, you know, progressive, I think we've got it, but tell me about yeah. the Baptist tradition of this. Well, so the Baptist tradition, uh, 
is usually associated with conservative life, yeah. particularly in the South, particularly in the South. Um, and that has to do a lot with the Southern Baptist Convention and the history of the Southern Baptist Convention splitting off from other Baptists in America over the issue of slavery in about 1840. And the trajectory of uh, what I, the kind of quick way of saying it is the Southern Baptist Convention is far more Southern than they are Baptist. Right. And, um, and so they're sort of, they, they take on cultural attitudes of Southern life and that's sort of what they're in sort of impacts their theology and their practices and their church life. But Baptists have a long history going back to the radical reform movement of the fifth in the 1500s in Germany and other places in Europe. And originally Baptists were very um, anti-imperial and peace activists and um, they rejected a lot of the sort of imperial Christianity of the Catholicism at the time. And they also didn't really appreciate the magisterial reformers of like Martin Luther or Calvin. They were sort of radical um, and would create intentional communities that practiced alternative ways of life in the middle of Europe. And so that's sort of the tradition. And the, one of the big differences is, and why there's so many different kinds of Baptists is that Baptists have no governing authority. Every church is autonomous. So you could go to a Baptist church here in Charlotte and walk down the street to another and they could be extremely different. Right. The exact opposite theologies, the exact opposite demographic makeup. So there's this sort of tension in the Baptist tradition between a radical kind of freedom Mm -hmm. and then where that freedom can lead, which is to all kinds of places. Um, You know, so sometimes the freedom leads to conservative identity. Sometimes the freedom leads to progressive and welcoming and inclusive identity. Myers Park just happens to be a church that who through their freedom has led them to, to be a place for inclusivity and progressive social justice work and that kind of thing in the community. Well, and I'm going to ask you a question because, you know, as a, you know, I'm the owner of Hilliard City Method, which yeah. is, has nothing to do with the church, of course, uh, unless you consider work out at church. And I think you've actually <laughs> spoken to that before in some of your podcasts. Um, we, you know, the reason we wanted to talk to you today is because there's such division, not only in our community of Charlotte, but in the country of our, our United States and even in the world. And we, as a, as a group of fitness professionals, try to support our members as, you know, wherever they come from in life, they are welcome. Mm-hmm. We are here as a safe community of support. Um, I've been fascinated during this quarantine because I live in your neighborhood near the, yeah. near the church and I walk past those church, the church with the banners and I'm thinking, what is happening here? And I, you can read it. I mean, Black Lives Matter, justice, inclusivity, spirituality, community. It's all written literally on a banner outside your church. Mm. Tell me how you are unify, helping to unify. And, and, and also at the same time, tell me about, you keep using the word progressive. Is that also liberal? I mean, that bad word liberal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, the reason we use progressive is because liberal has become sort of a, a bad word. Um, I don't necessarily think of liberal as a bad word. I mean, if you go to the root of the word liberal, it means that you're invested in people's liberation and freedom. I think we should all be concerned with people's liberation. We don't want people to be oppressed. I hope, I hope not. I mean, uh, I would say the majority of people don't want to oppress other people. Um, so I think there's, there's something there. I, it has been turned into a dirty word and, and now there's just, I think that's part of the polarization, uh, the way that we, the way that we can use a single word to put someone in a, in a, in a, in a hole, in a box 
And that's determines their entire identity instead of getting to know a more holistic sense of self. And, you know, we're all people who have a bunch of intersecting identities. We come from a, a lot of different places. Uh, just my, my members, um, a lot of my members are living in what I call like sort of purple households or divided households where the, you know, the wife is very, very progressive and the husband is, is more conservative or, or, or vice versa. We even have vice versa where, you know, sort of the, the husband is a Democrat or liberal person and the wife is more conservative. Um, those are rarer, but there's a lot of that. And so where do you, where do you go to church if, you know, you're a family and you have this divided household, how do you find a place? So now some people look at what we're doing and they think we're being divisive. But in fact, oftentimes the reality of life internally in the congregation is that we're one of the few places that you can go as a family where, you know, you're, where you have people on different sides of the political spectrum, particularly if you're on extreme polarities, it's really hard to find a place to worship. If you're really more close to the center and it's, it's really a fiscal conversation for you of a differing perspectives. But if you're really far on the polarities, particularly regarding social issues, where are you going to find a place to go? We've been a church that has had, you know, a wide variety of political views in it for a long time. It's not just, I mean, there are some folks who think outside that we're a church, you know, only of liberals or only of Democrats. And that's, that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, when I arrived, I would probably say that about 50% of our board of deacons was you know, voting Republicans at the time. So, I mean, th- there is a, there's a wide diversity within our congregation. At the same time, we do feel like it's really important as a community to speak really clearly about the justice issues that the church has historically stood on. Now, I'm not the first minister to care about justice here. There's a long legacy here. I'm standing on tall shoulders that were far more, I would say, far more aggressive than me at certain particular times in history. If you were to take them in their historical context related to what I'm doing in mine, um, you know, if you think about the way like Carla Marty was speaking against white supremacy in 1948, was hired by this church after he had already been a nationwide leader talking about speaking against white supremacy in the South and to, and to work for civil rights here in the city of Charlotte in the, in the late 50s and early 60s was a very radical thing to be doing as a Baptist pastor, specifically in Myers Park, which at the time was a restrictive covenant. You know, you can't even live here. If you were so the, the, I look back on that and then his predecessor after him, you know, Gene Owens, you know, he was passionate about integration. I'm a member of Myers Park Baptist. Not that I see you often, as you know, <laughs> but I, I came to that church because of the diversity and I have been, you know, every on every spectrum of the political side and, and the, you know, you grow and you, you change mm. with life. And that's the thing I noticed about this church. Mm. Um, and, and that you are continuing that tradition on. And I remember Gene Owen saying in the pulpit, one of the greatest things they were proud of was being thrown out of the Southern Baptist. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's a badge of honor for us. We're very proud of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love that legacy that you're expressing, Liz, because I, I think we forget that. What happens when we're in the moment and the political division right now is it, we've been divided like this before as Americans. In 1968, America was as divided as we are now. That was a year where there was tremendous protest in the streets after the killing of Martin Luther King Jr. And there were reports written and there were and there were protests all over the country and there was damage being done to different things and lots of reaction. I mean, we're in similar moment uh, in American history. And look back to that moment and where our church was in 1968. I mean, we had already 
started the process of talking about sexual sexuality and inclusivity related to different sexual orientations and gender identities. And we were certainly out progressive on the issue of civil rights. And now we're in this in this moment. And the question for me always is I, I, I kind of wake up and I think, OK, what does it mean to be true to the legacy of who we are in this present moment? Not to rest on our history and think that just because we were considered progressive in the past or that we were, you know, a, a, you know, a vanguard for social justice in a previous generation. Our, my job as the current leader is to figure out what does it mean to do that again in each generation that we live in. And in this particular moment, we have felt that part of our part of our witness is to be bold in our statement of inclusivity uh, and justice. Uh, and we, we, this is something that we've always been passionate about as a congregation. And we felt like now is a time for us to be very clear about that. And so hence of the banners that you're seeing. And that is also part of a larger campaign to, to be more clear about who we are as a congregation, because we feel like church attendance and participation in church is declining rapidly in America. Right. And we have to wrestle with that. So that's, that was one of my questions. And Leah, I know you've got questions, but I'm yeah, just so no. fascinated. I think that's really important. So, I mean, I, I want to look at it kind of pre and post COVID. I mean, I think this decline in church attendance and going to, you know, religious institutions has been happening for a while. And then you throw in a pandemic where you literally can't go. So what did you see as the the shape and face of your church before and now after? And where are we going? Well, I sort of our church and the national trend are not going to be the same on this particular topic. I don't, I don't think personally, but we can talk about that. And I think sure. every church is in a different place related to how COVID. And the other thing is we're in a long game now related yeah. to COVID. So I don't know where we're going to be six months from now. <laughs> yeah. But I will say that the, initially for us, we had a, a big jump in participation by going online. And, uh, you know, the church here, I like to joke, we're very, very progressive on social issues, but we haven't been about infrastructure and many other things. So we were basically broadcasting our service in what I call VHS. (laughs) That's great. And and now we're in 4K and it's taken us six months to get from VHS to 4K. So they kind of caught you off guard. I mean, this thing came down and you went, holy cow, we've got to... Yeah. I mean, and it, it, it revealed to us how far behind we were in our technological upgrades that were needed. You know, we, we didn't have a single computer in the church office with a microphone or a camera. Wow. I mean, so, so we, yeah, yeah, we were way behind. So, I mean, and that brings to mind, you know, the mega churches, they were ready, rocking and rolling. Right. I mean, right. Yeah. They, they've been doing, they've been doing streaming ministries for years and years and years. And so, and some churches like first Pres downtown, they do a broadcast on TV every week. So they had all the equipment. So, and, you know, so churches were on a difference on a spectrum of where, how prepared they were. Um, so we spent a lot of time getting ourselves to putting out, to try to be able to move everything we were doing online to try to put out as high quality a product as we could possibly put out of worship and to do some diverse things and innovative things to try to keep it fresh. You know, each week it can't be, it can't be rote because you're, you people are turning in. So you've got to have something fresh. And it's like Hillary studio method. <laughs> I'm just saying, you got to be fresh every time you can't right. throw the same product out every single time. Exactly. And and I'll just interrupt one more time. I listened to your uh, sermon yesterday and I, for one, found it intriguing and I recommend it to anyone to listen to because there was just you and right. I really listened to you. And I think there is something to be said. I think we all miss the music and all of that. But as far as getting your message out, it was good. 
Well, thank you. Um, yeah, we're trying to, I'm trying to relate. And so I've basically yeah. been preaching on nothing but related to COVID or racial justice or both every sermon for six months. So, and <laughs> it's amazing how much content is there. It doesn't really get stale because there, every week we have something new to react to or to, to respond to. And there are so many anxieties in our world and in our, in our members' lives that are impacting their every day. You know, I, in one sermon a couple of weeks ago, I just started out listing all my anxieties, you know, just to say, here's what I'm anxious about. Like my kid's education. I'm every day I, I have like, I'm anxious about whether or not I'm going to get COVID or if my family members are going to get COVID, right. you know, or my church members are going to get COVID. What's going to happen with the church? What's going to happen with democracy in America with this upcoming election? And, right. you know, there's so many anxieties right now. People are just they're weighted down with all this and their bodies are weighed down, right? The body keeps score, right? So yeah. that's not just our minds, but our bodies are keeping score of all this weight that we're carrying. You, you can't, you can't fool the body. You no. can fool the mind a little, but the body right. is going to be real every single time. Right. right. Uh, so I just, I got to ask this. I mean, I just love what you're doing, but I also am a very, uh, I, I think I'm pretty open-minded. I mean, Lee and I are in a relationship. I used to be married to an incredible man. I mean, all those good things. I've, I've sure. lived a long, good life. Um, I want to know how I can get my friends that are maybe afraid to come outside of their box. And, and, and I'm not trying to, I think what you're doing is incredible, but I want you to be able to talk to people that have said, no, I have to see Jesus or God or religion just this way, or it's just not going to work. What you're doing when you say justice and when you say inclusivity is also those people is everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we all, if we look, if we investigate our lives long enough, we will, we'll find that we are probably imprisoning ourselves in ways of thinking and ways of living that are unhealthy. And theology is no different than psychology or bad eating. You know, what we consume theologically also impacts our lives. So we can we consume bad ideas about God, bad ideas about how to live in community together, bad ideas about scripture or the Bible or Christianity. We, we also in, we, we embed them in us. And then we not only harm ourselves, but we harm other people with them. I mean, one of them, right, one really, really harmful one is I'm not enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm not yeah. enough. That means not only am I not enough, nobody is enough. And so I'm going to treat everybody else as like, they have to get, they have to have something that they don't have. It's going to make them better. And that kind of it creates shame and guilt and pain. And that's not healthy. And that's not the message of the gospel. The gospel is grace, right? You're already, it's already grace. You're already enough. You're already loved and careful. Now it doesn't mean that you, you don't need to do work and strive and grow, mm-hmm. but um, so there's all these different, and one of the, and I think there's a lot of theological messages that the church has given out over the years that have been extremely harmful and we've consumed them. And some of them we've used to make sense of our world, but they don't really work with our everyday lives and our families. I mean, you just described your relationship. That's a perfect one that has been like a, a Copernican revolution for the church in America, right? right. That has just been like, boom, now we have to rethink family. We have to rethink sex. We have to rethink reproduction. We have to rethink how we think about God's relationship to uh, what love looks like and what family looks like. And what we realized after some time with it is that we had inherited some very strange Western cultural views into the church about marriage and family and life and love that we were using to create a society, particularly in the South, 
that made sense to us and kept people in their appropriate places, but it was not a liberated life. It was not a life of freedom. Right. And it was a life where there was a lot of oppression and a lot of repression. Right. I think what's happening is a lot of people have become content with their own repression. And that's a great point. A lot of people have become content with their own repression. Right. Yeah. You said, yeah, Yeah, that's what I said. I mean, I think I I could tell you, just speak as a person, I've been divorced twice. Right. So I can be like 14. Are you kidding me? It's not easy to be married to a pastor. I'll just put it that way. (laughs) Um, It's not something people always sign up for. It's not lining up at the door, huh? Yeah, no, it's challenging. I mean, I think in in a a previous generation, I would not even be able to have a job as a minister anymore. Right. right? right. Because divorce was something. I mean, if we look at this in relationship to sexual norms, divorce was something that the church persecuted, right? You could not be a deacon. You couldn't be a leader. Uh, let alone if you were a woman, right? I mean, we could go into all the different ways in which the church has repressed and, and oppressed different segments of the population for, for you know, and where where's the repression for those who are greedy? That's never happened. In yeah, that's right. I mean, it's like we pick and choose what social value, what social norms we've decided are the ones that we're going to use, that the church is going to use to control people. And I just believe in freedom. Freedom. And so the church wants to control people. The way I always read that, and and I'm always questioning because I am very, very spiritual. And I'm not going to say that spiritual, but not religious thing that y'all talk about all the time. (laughs) I'm very spiritual and I'm very in touch with how I feel about that. Um, To me, the whole repression is fear-based. Anything I'm afraid of, I want to control it. Um, The minute I look at it in a different way as, as in someone else's lives. I mean, I, I might look at someone that's very, you know, controlling of other people and go, why are they so controlling? Why are, there's some hurt, there's some fear. Mm-hmm. So it seems like to me, a lot of religion, not maybe just the Christian religion, but a lot of religion has been fear-based, like yeah. controlled. And, yeah. and that's why I like, we wanted to talk to you for one reason. It feels like you're not, you're not working off of that premise. And, and I don't want to point the, the finger at other churches, but no, yeah. there, but I think, so one of the, there's a great book that changed my life written by a woman named Ellen Davis, who is an old Testament scholar. And I encountered her at Duke and she, she has this whole thing on Job or whatever in the book of Job. But one of the things she says in that is that you, there's a quote in that chapter on that, where she says, you can't love what you, what you try to control, that control and love are opposed to one another. Think about that in relationships. If you try to control your partner, you're not loving them. You're trying to put them into your life in a way that makes sense to you and makes you comfortable and fits everything. And, um, and so like what, one of this thing that, that uh, scholar Davis says that God asks Job is, can you love what you don't control? (laughs) And so that's sort of the lesson of life. We don't control God, but we're called to love God. God also doesn't, has decided to abstain from controlling our everyday lives, right? For whatever reason. And so, and yet God loves us, right? So control and love are opposed, not in the line of each other. Like we sometimes think, think about parenting. Right. Uh, We love to control our children, right? But we can't control our children. If we try to control them, then we don't love, we're not actually loving them, right? And that's the same in our relationship with God. It's the same in our relationship with other human beings. And like much of, much of like the history of Christianity in America over the last 100 years has been the church's attempt, particularly, I think, to control women. 
Like I want to put it very clearly mm-hmm. because almost every major, you know, moral issue that they have decided is the most important moral issue. There are a lot, loads of ones we could have ta- tackled, you know, greed, um, all, you know, poverty, all sorts of different ones. But what we've decided to talk about are the ones that have to pertain to sex and, and women, mm-hmm. right? So what we've, what we've really decided and the church has decided throughout American history is women have a particular role and function in society. And if they don't figure function in that way, then everything's going to fall apart. So we're going to use our religious tradition and some of the, uh, and, and re- interpret the scriptures that we have in a particularly negative way toward women as a, as a way of controlling their role in society. And, and women have been fighting against that for a hundred years, right? More than that. Right. And, and so think about everything like fr- from the, the big debates about abortion or sexuality, a lot of those are reactions to the women's liberation movement, right? Women, women leaving the home and getting jobs and becoming empowered. And um, I think the church, I think the church was off base with that. I, I think, you know, particularly because in most cases, women were really running the church in the first place as they do most things in the world. And, and like to, to turn to them and say, oh yeah, no, sorry, you, you can't have this empowerment. You know, you need to go back to cooking the meals for the whole church and you can't be a leader you know, you have to go back and do that. I think it was just ridiculous. And the church has really lost a lot of credibility by trying to focus right. on these issues of control instead of focusing on issues of freedom and liberation and empowerment. Because when you think about Jesus, Jesus was the first to accept women. And oh yeah, I'm not the biblical scholar, but I know my Bible stories. And <laughs> there's never a story about Jesus putting down women on, on the other hand, it's him, you know, you that has the, you know, have not sinned, you throw the first stone. Right. I mean, that story is about as empowering as you can possibly imagine. Right. I mean, and also like, where's the guy in that story? Patriarchy. Like where, why isn't he there getting stoned? Yeah. This is crazy. Uh, can I just like interject how much I love you already? And I'm going to come back to church as soon as I physically can, because you won't let me yet, but I'm going to use that in use right now. Um, the Baptist tradition, because I did grow up in this in the yeah. Baptist tradition. I know my Bible stories, but here's what I've learned that other people and other religion, you grew up as a Methodist. Yeah. You grew up as a Methodist. I can run circles around her in Bible stories and I almost failed at GAs. I never even made it past princess. No one knows what that means. But in I the do. church, it's like, you know what it means? It's yeah. like you have this hierarchy of women that understand the Bible. Mm-hmm. Well, I understand enough to make it to like the second level, right? But I can have circles around most of my friends who proclaim to be very religious. But the stories yeah. of Jesus are fascinating and Great. so pertinent to today. Yeah. I mean, there's a lack of biblical literacy everywhere. Yes. And we, we actually kind of struggle with this in the church because I think the problem is there are a lot of people who associate knowing the Bible with being controlled. Right. 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 So like, oh, you're you're being controlled. But actually knowing the stories gives you more power and gives you an ability to defend yourself and your faith and your spiritual tradition from those who want to put you back in the box of this is what you have to think. This is what you have to do. So the more you know, the more the stories, you know, um, the better off you are in trying to have this defense against the dark arts, as I call it. You know, it's like just (laughs) you need to be able to say. 
that like you need to be able to quote the story of Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery so that you can say, no, 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 it's not about judgment. It's not about the death penalty. Like here's Jesus basically saying no death penalty. This woman is not, we're we're not going to kill this woman. You know, like, so if you don't know the stories, how can you defend yourself against somebody who says, no, 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 women have to do this. And you know, this is the only right sexuality. And this is what a family is supposed to look like. All of which I think are not what the new Testament describes. Jesus didn't, Jesus said almost nothing about sex in yeah. all the gospels. Like, like if you were to percentage a lot about it. Yeah. Right. If you were to put a percentage on it, right. It's, it's like 95% money. And then like 1%. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. You know, like all these parables are about like, you know, the parable of the talents is the key. I mean, just all the stories, a lot of the stories are about money. Um, You know, it's, there's a lot in there about greed and money and, and what it means to have a particular, like an appropriate relationship with our, with our possessions Mm -hmm. and almost nothing about like actually one time when Jesus is asked about marriage, he's being trapped by the Pharisees (laughs) who are trying to say, you know, okay, we're going to give you a test. Um, this woman was married to a man and he died and then she married his brother and he died. And then he had all these brothers. So she married all the brothers and all the brothers died. And now she's dead. <laughs> and they say, so who does she belong to? Think about this. Who does she belong to oh, right. when she goes to heaven? And what does Jesus say? There's no marriage in heaven. Right. There's no giving or receiving of marriage in heaven. So even when he talks about sex, right, which is what yeah. marriage is generally about, um, is like he's saying, no, no, this is not an eternal thing. This is not an, a, a part of our eternity. So this is not a very high consequence or situation that we're yeah. in. When he talks about money, on the other hand, it's always like, and that person in the afterlife. And here's what yeah, right. the eternal consequences of not having an appropriate relationship with your charitable giving and your, and your generosity. I, I mean, I think we've, Reverend, uh, there's a there's a there's a black liberation scholar who says, why do we say so much about what Jesus says so little and so little about what Jesus says so much? <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's sort of like the, the early church got a hold of a great idea and made it their own idea. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's a great idea. But oh, but let's add this to it, because this will keep right. us in power. Right. right. So, yeah. Well, you start to build like a society around it. And when you start to yeah, build yeah. a society around it, you start having like rules for families and norms and culture and and you lose the the original sort of radical root, the freedom, the liberation of the of the root teaching mm-hmm. uh, when you build the structure around it. So I try to what I try to do is kind of pull all that away and help people just see the story as it was told in the first century context and how extraordinary it would have been to those listening in that time of, of, of Roman occupation in Galilee. And, you know, Jesus was from one of the poorest places in Galilee, Nazareth. Like it was like the armpit of, of the empire, right? It's just like, the, and he, he comes out of a place that also had a lot of revolutionaries coming out of it as well. And so here he comes from this background of a revolutionary tradition, offering this liberation teaching, this teaching of freedom this beautiful spirituality and we've reduced it to a family values. Like that is so sad to me. Well, I mean, you even said the liberation movement, like as if we had to have a movement for everyone to feel liberated. (laughs) Not just a natural (laughs) right or way. So if everybody just listened to the stories and then just made their own decisions, then the power of Jesus would be the power of the story and and what he had to say. Right. telling it with their version of it. 
Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's what a. Think you do at Mars Park Baptist? Well, we try to. So we. That's one thing that I think is very different about us. So we don't require any person who participates in our community to assent to any doctrine. Okay. So like when you become a Methodist, not to pick on, I love, I was raised Methodist. My family's all Methodist still. When you become a Methodist, you're, you are signing up for Methodism. doesn't mean there's not freedom, but you're signing up for generally the basic ideas of Methodism, Presbyterianism, the same Episcopalianism, Catholicism, but Baptists have this, this is why I think Baptists really have a progressive history. You know, we were, we were believers in the separation of the church and state. Some of the early Baptists were the ones who wrote the Bill of Rights. There was this sort of revolutionary core at the heart of what, what it meant to be Baptist because there, the original Baptist belief was in what they called soul liberty, the freedom of conscience, that no person could be compelled to believe something that by someone else. And when you, that's again, goes back to this control question. This meant that Baptists like Roger Williams had some of the best interactions and relationships with indigenous folks. Today is Indigenous Peoples Day, right? So I just want to bring up that like a lot of our relationships with indigenous communities have been, you better believe this or you're going to, you're going to die or we're going to take your land. But Roger Williams said, no, 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 we don't compel people to believe anything. We can learn to live in peace with people who don't agree with us. Mm -hmm. So back to your question about unity, like when we compel people to believe what we believe, that's the start of disunity. Right. Right. Freedom believes that you say, no, 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 we can't compel anything. In fact, if we try to compel it, it's not real anyway. People have to come to it themselves. And if you try to force it down their throats and tell them they have to believe this, that's not real religion. That's not real spirituality. That's something else. That's some kind of system of oppression or control. And so this idea of soul liberty, every individual conscience is completely and totally free to believe whatever they come to believe between God and themselves. That is the core root of what we mean when we say it means to be Baptist. So we'll be okay with that, right? Oh, absolutely. So I can't go to Mars Park Baptist Church and be an atheist. Or I can go to Mars Park. Yeah, Yeah, atheists are some of our best members. That's a like those are that's our core. I I was actually in a Sunday school one time that was an atheist Sunday school class there. I love that. I love it. We have a we have a slogan, uh, it's not up right now, that says, um, a pastor, an atheist, and a transgender woman walk into church, no joke. Because that happens. That happens every Sunday at Myers. I mean, we love that part of our. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's really powerful because I feel like what I see is, you know, in other churches trying or even organizations, whatever communities that lead on that repression that so many different people are going to, we're going to all be rebellious and we're just going to like slide down the slippery slope. When in fact, what I'm seeing in your church and what you're speaking to is much more unity because of that freedom. That's how, say, like a, a very conservative member can continue to be a leader in our congregation, right? So you don't, they don't have to buy into any of the signs. Mm-hmm. They don't have to believe in, they don't even have to believe in the statements that we've come to, come to make. Mm-hmm. Right. What we have is a covenant that is like a way of living together. And all the covenant says is that we'll be, I mean, it's pretty lengthy, but it's like, we'll be open to new, we'll be open to new light. Um, we're going to, we're going to pursue a critical examination of scripture, belief, and ritual at all times. We're open to all people, close to none, you know, and we're all on a journey. Like it's, we're on a journey. We're never at a fixed point. We're never, we never make it right. So we're always on this in process. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that that's how people can believe in the institution and the organization and its mission and movement in the world without necessarily believing in every part of it and every aspect of it. We don't ask that. All we ask is for love and relationship, you know, and people can be united then in their compassion for each other as human beings and not united in idea. Yes. I mean, this is the thing about unity. What do we mean by it? Like, do we mean unity like we all need to agree or do we mean unity and we should be able to be together and not right. kill each other? Right. Like that. Yeah. We need that. Do yeah. we need that right this minute? It's, yeah. it's the 911 call because right. we are tearing each other apart. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see the most conservative people, meaning conservative in any way, politically, religiously, however, walk in and, and join in and see where, where you find common ground. Yeah, I never, I never thought I would say anything about Jesus because I'm, I just, I believe that the stories though are compelling enough for those two diverse people to sit down and hear the story and actually hear the story. They might have different takeaways from it, but the unity, and it doesn't have to necessarily be Christianity. It can be some form, whether it's Buddhism or Judaism. Or any of those things that I think that's the the beauty right now of the religious teachings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there is a common space for us all in in being connected through our spirituality or whatever it is. Our, you know, if we believe in a higher power, or if we just believe in if we're just humanists, we just mm-hmm. believe in humanity and that humanity should be given the chance to flourish. I mean, we can connect with people on that. Um, I do think that we don't have we don't have spaces where people have are able to come together with a difference of viewpoints and really talk to each other as human beings. Part of it is we usually start with some goal in mind of what we think right. the dialogue should lead to, <laughs> but you can't really start there. If you really want people to talk, you have to get into their humanity. The best way to kind of start is like, you know, you start with what do you really have in common as, as human beings living in America in the middle of COVID, like Mm -hmm. that's what you have. You have your, you have your humanity, your, your humanity, you know, you're fragile. You could get sick. You may have family members who are sick. You could die. Your children are being educated virtually. You know, you have, you have these struggles, right? Deal with the common struggle first and talk about the common struggle because what, what politics in America has done, it is used polarizing issues, wedge issues to try to, to divide people from each other and from their interests and to make them think they don't have anything in common with each other when in fact they really do, right? Like for instance, poor white folks and black folks in America have far more in common with one another than they have with those of other classes. And yet they feel divided from each other. That's intentional. That's what race, race is used to divide people on that, to keep them from finding economic solidarity. So there's, there's so much we have in common if we could just talk, you know, really about what we share instead of, instead of starting with, okay, you're a Republican, I'm a Democrat or you're liberal, I'm conservative. And let's start there. That doesn't really go anywhere. Cause then we feel like we have to defend all of the tradition of, of what right. we're starting with. I think it'd be great to get everybody in a room. You can't say which one you are, but you just have to talk. You know? <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's what you do at Myers Park Baptist Church. And I said this at the very beginning, yeah, but and I don't want to go all the way because we don't want to take up all the time on this, but you wrote a doctrine, a, a thesis for your doctoral yeah. due. Uh, called Dis- uh, discerning race through spiritual practice in white dominant church. Yeah. Now, um, 
are you saying that church has been established on white supremacy? <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, you just went right there. Um, yes. The answer to that is actually, yeah, I'll just, yeah, that. I mean, that's what I would, and yeah. you can look, there's, there's scholars who've written on that right now. And there's a number of articles written by a scholar named Robert P. Jones, who runs the a public religion research Institute, who has said that in America, particularly the white church has made people more racist than less racist. And, and so we have to reckon now with this history we have to reckon with a, a legacy of white supremacy that has infected not just the church, but every institution in America. Yeah, and so of like, our listeners just went, okay, I can't listen to this. I know, whitey, I know. Whitey, and I've already, I already feel guilty about the whole thing and I don't understand it. I'm trying to be good to people. You know, this is yeah. a hard thing. And I think it's something that we of the, um, of the Caucasian class of the white people class have got to just take a look at. We don't want to look at this. And I, I, so I would just pray that people are listening right now. Just hold on a minute. Cause I, yeah. I think don't be scared yet. Cause there's a way to do this that doesn't lead to shame and guilt and paralysis. There's a way to walk through this process. So I know some of your listeners are people who care a lot about their bodies and work out and exercise a lot. I know you all do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me just start with saying, uh, what would you say to somebody whose body has atrophied and whose muscles had atrophied from years of neglect and who, when you talk to them, is in denial about the way that their body is limiting their life and limiting their flourishing and, and imp- inhibiting the way that they interact with their loved ones? Uh, can, they, can they care for their grandchildren? Can they play with their, their, their friends? Can they go on long hikes? I mean, just how is their health and their body and their, the, the care of their body and their muscles constricting their livelihood and their flourishing? Of course, let alone all the health benefits and that kind of thing. Let's just start there. Mm-hmm. That is the best analogy to talk with white people. White people are people whose muscles for racial dialogue have atrophied because whiteness goes invisible and we don't have to deal with race. We can go home and have a whole day where we never think about our race. And so that means we can have whole days, weeks, months, years where we don't exercise. Whereas black people, they have no choice but every day to wake up and deal with the fact that they are black in American society. There is no way to avoid it. They can't avoid race. It's it's always visible. It's unavoidable. Their lives are impacted by that. And so they're constantly exercising their muscles related to it and are often fatigued and tired by what they see and hear and experience. But we don't see and hear and experience this. So that when the murder of George Floyd, for instance, happens, it is a shock to us because we are not exercised and prepared for it. It's like taking the body that has not exercised and making them do, you know, two hours of cardio. You're, you're going to have, they're going to throw up. You're going to have, you're going to, they're going to cry. You know, you're not, it's not, they're not prepared and you wouldn't even do that. Like that's not the way to treat someone whose body has been atrophied and whose muscles are atrophied for years of neglect. So we first have to know that we're dealing with that when we go at the question from the first part and we have to have compassion about that situation. doesn't mean we have to apologize for it or be fragile about it. We need to be honest about it and we just need to say, okay, but that means we have to ease in a little bit and we ease into that with, with just questions I think are some of the best. Like what does it mean to you to be white? 
You know, what does it mean? What is it to be white? What does it mean to be a white American? Um, and what is that about? Now, I've done lots of extensive research on this and could use a whole lot of big words here. But I think starting with really innocent questions around the dinner table, innocent questions with people about it, pointing it out, saying, hey, look, that's, you know, that feels kind of that's kind of a white thing. White people do that. Or um, this is what it meant for me to be white. Um, and just to kind of talk about it, talk about it more, because then it then it goes away from being this thing that's in, we're in denial about all the time and we're hiding from to something that's regular. Like it's even when we bring it up once a day, that's like exercising once a day. Right. We're getting a little bit better at it. We're getting a little bit stronger and our stamina is building up so that if somebody comes at us with a, wanting to have a hardcore talk about, like, let's say, why 80% of white evangelicals voted for Trump, we're prepared for a conversation like that, not totally atrophied and then jumping into it as someone who's already exhausted from the moment the question is asked. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it does not have to be something that is we have to hide from. I think about it in, in terms of just like anything else in our lives, like going to a therapist or going to church or exercising or eating right. It is about self-love. It, and, and one of the things that was a big jump for me is when I realized that my participation in white supremacy was hurting me, not just hurting black people. But when I realized that it was something that was inhibiting me and limiting my life and limiting my flourishing and my relationships and, my, and the world that I want to see for everybody. I mean, I want to see a beautiful world for everybody. And, and so that, that was, I think we can think about it in ways that are not so politically divisive and then give people a chance to look at it. I do think though, and what my work is on is I've created a spiritual process and I think it, it, that's the unique part of it. I mean, there's a lot of ways to look at race. You can read a book on race. You can be in a book study. You can read how to be an anti-racist. You can read white fragility. And there's thousands of those book studies going on all over the place right now. What I've created is an intentional process that is just for white people or people who are racialized as white to walk in a small group of 10 of, of, of eight to 10 through reading black authors and creatives. So movies and articles Mm -hmm. written by black people that create a picture or show a picture of what white people look like to black people throughout history. And because we're in our, in our kind of affinity group of whiteness, a caucus group, there's lots of meditation. I have meditation practices around this and mindfulness so that we're prepared and our egos are properly sublimated so that we can engage in this dialogue. And there's lots of um, rules about how, how people can engage with each other in the group from a place of appreciative inquiry. We don't cross talk. We don't fix each other. We're not trying to change each other. It's really about our own individual journey and walking with each other in this. And just so that we come in each week after watching these movies or reading this material and just reflect on how, it, how did it make you feel? Mm-hmm. How did it make you feel? What come, came up for you? What did you learn? But the other thing I do is I ask everybody in the process to write a racial autobiography and to start with their childhood. Yeah. Go all the way back to when they were a kid and like a journal. Journaling is such an important spiritual practice. Go back to when you were a child and write your, your life history of race. When did you, when did you um, first recognize that you were white? When were your first interactions with people of color? What was your family's interaction? What were your family's perspectives on that? What did you inherit from them? What did they teach you about being white? Mm 
Um, what did you, what did you get explicitly and what did you get kind of implicitly, right? Where did you go to church? How did that impact race? What was that like school, right? We can all, everybody in Charlotte has a history about school and education, right? And just do that history. When are your intera- Did you have black friends in high school? Did you not? Did you play sports? You know, what was your interaction with the black community? Did they come over to your house? Did you go over to theirs? Did you, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and write that, write that down and then look at it. I have them do that at the beginning. And then we go through the whole process and they write it over again at the end. Oh, and that's, you can, fascinating. that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. You see kind of a marked shift in uh, looking at the question. I think a lot, of, a lot of white folks, when we engage in racial dialogue, we think we're doing a favor for somebody else. Sure. Right? Like it's... That's what I sort of read in the small bit of the essay that I, that I said. And, and as you're talking, I think you're making me feel better about having my white friends go, oh my God, do you have to give me one more thing I have to do, right? To be yeah. a white person and to be relevant in this conversation of Black Lives Matter. And most of them, you know, a lot of them are just like, I don't want to hear about it anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just, you know, voicing other white people, not my voice, but you yeah, yeah. do that. And you're given this as a spot where we're just, you know, give yourself a break as a whitey. <laughs> right. Yeah. You take know? a break. Like, and take a break. I, I don't think you should ever like not going, coming back to it is to give up on your body. Yes. Right. Exactly. That's the same. You have to take a break from a workout. You right. work really hard. Right. Now take a day of rest take a day off. Up, and let's go back at it the next day. Right. So when people are at that point where they're like resisting so hard and they're just like, I can't right now, I, I just don't have any space for it. Give them space. But sure. then they just say, look, OK, I hear you. You need rest from this. Rest is rest is good. Rest mm-hmm. is recovery. Right. Um, and we don't rest is also subversive in this society where we're constant. Right. So just re- give them re- and then but say, but I want to come back and I want to talk to you about it in two weeks right. or I'm, I'm going to come talk to you about it a week from now. And I take the week. And let's talk about it again next week or and next time I see you. Another thing about quarantine is we got plenty of time. Yeah, right. sort of back at it. We've got plenty of time. Yes, but I do think people have been so hit by that busy, exhausted. And I think, yes, we might have slowed down a little bit, but the the issues are seem so much more heavy. And I think that's a good thing. We've had time to mm-hmm. kind of feel the issues, but but to know that we've got some space to... To like a spiritual journey. I mean, you don't have to just jump into church and know everything and right. know what you believe, right? That there's that path to go on um, and to be open to it is where the growth can begin. Yeah, I think so. One of the reasons why some some scholars are saying that one of the reasons why so many white people have participated in the movement for Black Lives this summer is because they had time. Yeah. Think about that from set for a second. Yeah. Right. So exhausted. So like when you right now, when you come to somebody with a question about their whiteness or, you know, you're also dealing with someone who is feeling the, you know, allostatic load of anxiety related to COVID. Like, exactly. dealing with, like I can't handle anymore. What do you yeah, mean? I anxiety? have my anxiety I'm bringing, I'm stressed out. And I, now I'm talking to another stressed out person and we're bringing a whole nother most stressful topic we could possibly imagine into the room in the middle of a pandemic. Like we got to give yourself, give ourselves a break here. You know, is, and there's a lecture. Uh, I know. I know. I know. Oh yeah. This is uh What do you see? I want to jump in real quick on any of the topics, but social media and how (laughs) this has changed our lives and how you see it. What's what's going on? 
Well, it's changing our brains. It's not just, I mean, it's changing everything, right? It's changing my kid's life. Like my daughter's 10 and she's on TikTok all the time. And it's like, it's changing what she cares about, how she thinks about the world, what she thinks is important. Um, you know, I think we're going to have to start thinking about it more like a drug, I think. Right. You know? How about and, we get in on it? I mean, how about Mars Park Baptist gets in on it? How about Hilliard City yeah. gets in on it, right? Yeah. I mean, you can use this. It's there. I mean, these kids are learning virtually. There's nothing we can do about that right, in, right now. Right. What we can do is get, I mean, you know, I look at Instagram. That's my thing. Some people, Twitter, Facebook, other people have different things. Almost every kid has TikTok. Find a way to get what you want to say on that. Myers Park Baptist should be maybe all over Twitter or something. I don't know. Are you? We are on some of those platforms, but we, you know, we're using it probably. We, we need to be more creative in the way we use those platforms. Like what are we trying to accomplish? Yeah, Sometimes right. we just using it as basic marketing when really we, maybe we need to get a message out there that's specifically yeah. targeted to a particular demographic of like, and how do you get a message out on TikTok? I mean, somebody <laughs> right. you you have to it. dance. They're going to have yeah. to come up with some dance, you know? <laughs> Hey, um, would love that. Your, I, I know your daughter would love that. Oh, she would love that. She's tried to get me on TikTok a bunch of times. You know, just accidentally, you know. Well, I mean, I, I know that we see all the, I mean, we, we're showing our age too. I mean, we see all the sure. downside of it, but it is there. And I yeah. feel like it is something that, you know, I want to be a part of on a positive positive way and it and there's just so much there we could do a whole podcast on this whole sure. thing, the whole conspiracies and you know people being influenced without knowing they're being influenced yeah. and um so you know that is another podcast <laughs> that is another podcast I, yeah. I do think though it's like one of the things that and i wanted to mention this earlier actually when you mentioned like what's the different how do different people relate one of the things that i've learned about myself and about human nature is we're overly optimistic about how strong we are in protecting ourselves from outside influence. That's true. That is true. There's a reason why people with PhDs in philosophy are going to work for marketing companies, right? And PhDs in anthropology are getting paid millions of dollars to work for marketing companies. If marketing didn't work, they would not be spending the money that they are doing it. It's working, right? It's working on us. And basically all the social media things are being paid for by marketing. They're selling our data. They're selling us, us back to ourselves, right? How often do I go on there and I see a product that I search for on Google show up for me as for sale, right? They're selling me back my own data, my own ideas. And it becomes this kind of constant echo chamber. I think we have to recognize once we recognize that we're far more easily influenced than we imagine we are because we're influenced in ways that we don't understand. It's, they don't appeal to our heads. I mean, what's the last car commercial you saw that's like, Hey, uh, this car has these specs and that's why you should buy it. You know, it's no, it's like, they're selling you love and hiking and sex yeah. and yes. friendship. And, sex. Right. Yeah. A lot of sex. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's hitting our hearts. Like they're trying to go out, They don't want to get our heads. They want to get our hearts. So what does it mean that that's our, that's our most, that's our most powerful tool is right. to protect that, protect our hearts and what they care about and what they're working on because everybody is, that's also how the politicians are working. Like that's how politics works there. Everybody's trying to go after the, uh, the heart and using whatever heart kind of issue, affections and loves and passions, even if they're the nastiest parts of our hearts, right? They will use whatever they can do to get, nobody's appealing to the mind anymore. It's like we're in this post-truth, post-fact world. Exactly. 
the best thing we can do is read a lot of facts and truth, right? And really try to try to find truth, history, mm-hmm. real, real scholarly work, that kind of thing. And also make sure we're protecting our hearts, right. I think, protect our kids' hearts. Right. And I think that was kind of to my point of what are we watching? Who are we listening to, to lead us in that? And, you know, our spiritual leaders like you, thank you very much. I think it's an important, important yeah. place to look. Well, you got to watch your spiritual leaders too. So just be. Yeah, no, well, right. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it is kind of, we fun. know, we're talking about, yeah. I, I, you know this yeah, is thing right now, I, yeah. I feel like we're doing a lot of crit- people are being a lot of critical of, of major institutions in America yeah. that we, we have trusted for a long time. And one right. of the, one of the things I say to some people who sometimes, you know, will ask me like about police, you know, and what are my feelings mm-hmm. are right now, police in America are still more trusted than pastors. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm not sure that's. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good comparison, but I just I think it's important for us to recognize that like, we've been losing our faith in leaders of right. institutions mm-hmm. for a long time, and I don't think that that lack of faith is actually helping us that much because what it's doing is creating a more chaotic world. That's right. right. We don't know who we can trust, and therefore we'll trust anybody. Right. And and that that kind of world of chaos where the the institution see this is. I mean, I'm a Gen, a Gen Xer, right? So yeah. <laughs> I'm not as anti-institutional as my millennial friends, right? But, I, right. but because I've seen the power that an institution can have to also help the world and a world without institutions is a world of chaos. And right. so I think we need to really think about how do we, how do we look at all of our institutions, whether it be a, a health and wellness fitness business, a hospital, a church, you know, the city government, a, a bank. What are we doing to try to create a healthy healthy world, right? For, our, for people to participate. So true. Agree. Yeah. I think it's good. It's, it's healthy to take a look at it, discern what's going well, what's not going well, but also to look at the, like you're saying, look at the institution as let's keep it, let's, let's, let's make it better because without yeah. it, chaos. So, um, I feel like yeah. we're sort of winding up. This, I I could, we could talk for, I know we could, it's so fun, but I, I did want to say one thing that we tend to always go back to amidst the, the stress, the anxiety, the fear, whatever's going on. I think the Hilliard studio method way is always movement, you know, to move your body, move your mind, your spirit. What is it that you would say at this point would be your, your message, your gift to listeners or your members or anyone? Well, first I would say that if I didn't do what y'all had already been recommending, I probably would, I've already had a big problem in the pandemic. Like I, the ice, I have just, I've been running and exercising and doing body resistance and some weight lifting, but mostly just running, like getting out every day that I can in the middle of zoom calls and just taking off and going as long as I can for whatever time I've got, you know, doing walking, trying to get outside you know, there's some, there's some early tests that say that vitamin D is, uh, is right. helps us resist COVID. So there's lots of stuff about the sun and vitamin D and the kind of foods eating right. My whole diet has changed. I'm eating at home way more often. Right. So it's changed how I eat. I mean, I think in, in, in our church, we've really tried to focus on the whole person. This is why we have a wellness center as a part of our church community and a preschool. And we, we want to look at spirituality is, is not just what we think of in our souls. You know, we have mind, body, soul, right? And it's the whole person that we want to impact. 
And, and so we're taught, we talk about what we're doing with our bodies a lot. We've had whole podcasts about it. We've had sermons about it. We had a whole series about it, you know, getting outside and digging in the ground with your hands, um, gardening. I mean, anything that people can do. I think if you make your practice, your spiritual practice is tied to your body. Those who have tied their spiritual practice to something that they do with their body, uh, have a far deeper and long lasting spiritual journey than I think others who, who don't tie their spiritual practice to their body. This is why in the church, we have bodily activities that you do, like eating bread and drinking wine, and <laughs> kneeling and walking forward and standing and certain kinds of prayer practices. And um, the body is supposed to be engaged in the process of spirituality, right? And if it's not, then our spirituality is all a head game. And that that's not that doesn't respect the full person. So I would suggest people really need to engage their bodies. Excellent. Amen to that. <laughs> All right. You know a little something about that, don't you? Yeah, we do. Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, there is no difference. Mind, body, spirit. It's all one thing and it's all communicating right. at the same time. We're, yeah. we're, we're three in one. We are the Holy Trinity, I think, but right. that be the religion, according to me. <laughs> uh, Oh, well, thank you, Ben. Thank Dr. You. Dr. Boswell, um, I look forward to hearing you more online. Lee, tell them how they can hear him. Do you remember any of this? <laughs> okay, you're going to have to do it. Byersparkbaptist.org, right? Start yeah. Oh, you have a really good, like, uh, advertising voice. You should yes, doesn't she? I always tell her that. Like, you've got to do our advertising. Totally yeah. do an advertise, like, or like the phone message. Yes. Yes. When I answer the phone at the studio, I really turn it on. <laughs> but yeah, everybody's got a positive voice. Well, we're on, you know, we're on YouTube as well. And okay. we're at, uh, you can follow me at my, at uh, Myers Park Pastor on Twitter, but we also have a Twitter handle for the church at MP Baptist and then at, on Instagram as well. Facebook, Myers Park Baptist Church on Facebook. So all of our stuff is now out digitally. We've, we've moved from the VHS world into the 21st century. So. I, I went to uh, MyersParkBaptistChurch.org, I believe, yesterday and listened to your sermon, which was only 23 minutes, P.S., which I thought was perfect. <laughs> my attention span doesn't go much beyond that. No, no kidding. And, uh, yeah. It was really, uh, it was really good. Thank you again. For Thank you for your time. Thank you all so much. Yeah. yeah, it was really great talking to you. Thanks. Let's do it again. Thanks for listening to the Hilliard Studio Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to the Hilliard Studio Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and a review so that others can find out about us. Don't forget to tell your friends to listen to the podcast too. We're going to keep providing you with great HSM content, including at-home workouts, healthy tips for you and your family, as well as candid conversations with Lee and Liz. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hilliard Studio Method for all the latest HSM news. Book classes, stream workouts, buy gear, and much more at our website, HilliardStudioMethod.com. That's it for now. We'll talk to you next week.